welcome to One More We All Go. I'm Brad. I'm Frank. And I'm Mike. Hey, Mike. We, actually, we should say that Mike is not in studio with us. This is our first. Uh, we don't have our guest in here with us. A, a lot of firsts today. We've got a white-collar worker from way down in Tulsa, Oklahoma. So, Mike, why don't you tell the world, our seven listeners in Belgium, what you do for a living? Well, I own a... Uh private charter company. We specialize in aircraft charter operations, primarily four passenger to 14 passenger operations flying all over the U.S. and really, frankly, worldwide. And then the separate line of business that we do is aircraft sales. So buying and selling planes for our clients and buying them for ourselves and flipping them for profit, as well as aircraft maintenance. So that's really kind of an overview of what I do. So thanks for having, uh, thanks for your time today. You sound way more important uh in life than to sit down and chat with us two yahoos. <laughs> so, <laughs> so don't you also, Mike, don't you manage planes for people where if they own them, then you'll make sure they have a pilot and they're up to date on their records and all of that stuff. Is that part of your line of work or am I out of line saying that? No, that's exactly right. We own about half of our fleet and we manage the other half. So okay. the owned portion is pretty simple to understand, but the, the managed concept is, you know, wealthy individuals and, and big corporations have a need to own an airplane to further their business operations, but they don't know the first thing about operating them, maintaining them, and all the stuff that goes along with it. So they'll engage a company like us to manage the airplane for them, and we ensure that it's done in a safe manner, that the airplanes are maintained as they should be. And so that is kind of the makeup of the fleet. So you would line up the staff and the the pilots and any stewardess or anything like that if they needed it, correct? Exactly. Their focus is on building their business and doing what's made them wealthy enough to be able to afford an airplane and they don't want to focus on the ins and outs of all the things that go along with operating an airplane and that's where we step in and and help them out. So correct me if I'm wrong here Mike but don't you guys they kind of give you permission to use that plane when they don't need it is that so it's almost like sky uber? Yeah it is yeah that's a good way of explaining it so you know we manage their operations and oversee their flights for their needs, but it's, it's really kind of that Airbnb concept. When they're not using the airplane, we'll charter it out to our charter clients and generate revenue on their airplane to help offset their overall cost of, of ownership and operating the airplane. It's a win-win for everybody. We, we make money and they offset their costs. Hold on. We're getting way too heavy in your career already, and we like to start way back at the beginning. You're managing this company down in Tulsa, but we're going to go way back to elementary school. It came from Tama, Iowa, right? Uh, Toledo, Toledo, Iowa. Okay. How dare you? <laughs> Tama is their in the arch Interview's rival. over. Yeah, he hung up. Sorry, guys. But so we want to start over there. You went up to school. Tell us about your brother, sister's family. I, I know them a little bit. Let's hear your side of the story for what went down in Toledo, Iowa back in the 80s. Yeah, sure. I grew up in a small town, Iowa, 2,500 total people in the Toledo area, uh, neighbored very closely by Tama. And it also has about 2,500 total people in the town. So a total of about 5,000. I think I graduated in a class of about 100 kids. My family is, you know, obviously my parents, as well as my sister, who has several names, Chrissy, Wilma, Christine. And then I have an older brother, Bob, and both of them reside in the uh, Iowa City area today. So why do you hate them and do the rest of your family enough to have to move all the way to uh, Tulsa? (laughs) 
funny, you know, I always thought that I would live in Iowa my, my whole life. And um, somewhere along the line, I got into aviation and I received a card in the mail about a school here in Tulsa, Oklahoma that would teach you how to fly. And that was the career path that I wanted to go down. And at the time, I really enjoyed the idea of moving away and experiencing a big city and so on and so forth. And so that's what I did. I, I came down here and, and learned how to fly. It took me a couple of years and, and eventually taught at that school. I became a flight instructor and taught folks how to fly. I just really, really enjoyed it here. So shortly after graduating college, I got my first real flying job out of Detroit, Michigan, flying freight and air ambulance and passenger operations and Learjets. And we were there about two years. And my wife, or she's girlfriend at the time, but my wife Bridget um, said, it's been two winters and it's time to go home. <laughs> and uh, we looked for a, a company here in Oklahoma that I could get on board with and uh, was lucky enough to get on with them back in the day. And, and I've been with that company ever since, coming up on 16 years now. Well, I have another question for you that kind of goes back to right before that period, but how the three of us met, I would like to hear your side of the story because I remember vividly, our girlfriends were roommates and then your girlfriend and Frank's girlfriend were workmates. And so, but yeah, put your side of the story out there for the world of uh, how we all came together to meet. So I first, well, so so I moved to Oklahoma to go to college, as we talked about, and um, my sister, my younger sister, is a year behind me, and she came down here to visit on spring break or something while she was still in high school, and she, she said, I really like this area. I think I want to check out schools in the Tulsa area, and so she ended up getting on with TU uh, and did a year there, and her first year at TU, she met this girl named Shiloh. So of the group, I met Shiloh first, and we had a good time, uh, all of us together, that first year that they were here, and uh, they decided to move to Stillwater to go to Oklahoma State University, both Shiloh and, and my sister Chrissy. And when they got there, I think through Shiloh's job, they met Bridget and Jess. Bridget's my wife, Jess is Brad's wife, of course. And I still remember the day that Brad came into the scene. I, I didn't see him first. I, I got a call from my wife who said, Shiloh brought this guy to town who is you absolutely hilarious. <laughs> He's absolutely hilarious. And I think Jess has fallen in love with him. And then I came the next day and met, uh, met you at the trailer. Well, I was, I think I told the story earlier, but I, I was determined I was going to marry one of those girls and Jess was the lucky one. <laughs> And she tells a different story. She's like, I told Shiloh, she better get him out of here right away. But uh, she was putting the vibe out there. She was feeling me. Oh, obviously. Right. Uh, I think the first time I met Mike, gosh, I don't know. I have a memory of meeting your wife for the first time where she just came in and jumped on top of me while I was asleep. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, and that was, uh, she, she's not real good at first impressions, Mike. I don't know how you guys ended up together, but. <laughs> <laughs> Well, yeah, because they were roommates, and they partied pretty hard, and Mike and I were there, conservative, and so we're there trying to read scripture and learn things about God, and the girls just wanted to party the whole time, but we, we were able to power through, and, you know, we live with their sins. <laughs> yeah. You guys are just working to make them better ladies. <laughs> right, right. I knew it. So then uh, you're in Oklahoma, you're at college, you get out, you, did, did you teach right after college, or did you, did you get into the uh, commercial world and then come back to college to teach? It was right out of college, and that's a normal progression for a pilot. They'll, they'll learn how to fly first, and you amass uh, 250 hours, 300 hours of total flying time through your instruction. And then you really have a decision to make whether you're going to go into commercial, you know, traditional commercial aviation 
or flight instruct. And um, just depending on the cycle of the economy and the hiring, how easy it is to get a job at that time or whatnot, really kind of guides your career path. If the industry is really hurting for pilots, they'll accept a lower you know, total time before they'll hire you. If the hiring market is not hurting for pilots, then they'll require a lot more time for you to get hired on in, in commercial type operations. And where I came in was not long after September 11th. So there was a ton more pilots than there were jobs. So I went down the flight instructor path and they taught me in college how to how to be an instructor. And so, you know, immediately after college for the first two years, I instructed pilots. And I got to tell you, that's probably one of my I mean, I really enjoy what I do now, but flight instruction was a lot of fun. It was fun to teach a, a difficult concept to to students who maybe are struggling to understand how to fly exactly how they should and and um, just keep working with them. And then eventually when it clicks and that light bulb goes off and they got it, it's good for them and it's rewarding for me. As a flight instructor, you write your own schedule. I really enjoyed it. That was, that was a part of my career that I, I, I really enjoyed. The money isn't good. but <laughs> <laughs> So uh, Brad would be the only one uh, of the three of us who didn't teach at the school uh, he went to. Right. Yo. I, taught, uh, I taught radio classes, and the deal with me was these kids were going to get out of college and then – potentially compete for jobs that I would apply for. So I didn't do a very good job. I purposely made sure they didn't know all of the, the tricks of the trade. So, and obviously you can't do that as a pilot because then people die. People die. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that's hilarious. <laughs> so when you were starting out flying, uh, did you enjoy flying people, freight, big jets, small jets? Did it make a difference to you? What did you enjoy doing better that, uh, that kept you going? I'll kind of give you a long winded answer here. So, I mean, yes. early, in a pilot career, it's really neat to go to, to new places and experience the different cities and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So at, at that point, it almost doesn't care what you're doing, if it's freight, if it's air ambulance, if it's passenger operations. You're just experiencing all those new new places, and, that, and that's a lot of fun. But as I look back on it, you know, what did I enjoy more? Each line is, is, is different, and there's things I like about each one of them, right? So freight you know, you load the, the packages on the back of the airplane and, and you go and you don't get any input from what's sitting behind you in the back of the airplane. You just, you just fly and you do your thing. Right. Passengers, you have to take care of the client. So there's that customer service kind of element, anticipating what it is they're going to want to drink and, and making sure that you have it on the airplane and that kind of human interaction piece that some people enjoy and, and some people don't. But for me, what was the most rewarding back in my flying days, you know, looking back on it, was the air ambulance piece. And um, those are tough missions. When there's a need, it's usually on the backside of the clock. It's middle of the night kind of stuff. And um, so it's tough flying because of that. But then it's also, a, you know, the reason you're flying is because somebody is not well. Right. Um, they've had an accident or or something. And, and, and the, the most rewarding part of that is you're taking them you know, somewhere where they can get the help that they need. But I've seen some <clears throat> pretty um, just unfortunate situations nice. in, in the past that, you know, again, look, looking back, you, you can be proud that you helped them out, but just some really uh, tragic scenarios. Um, right. And so did you ever have to haul, like, organs for a transplant? Like, at some point you're like, hey, I think we're hauling the ass. <laughs> You've been sitting on that one? I have. I have. <laughs> I'll tell you a little story about that one. The, the first one that I did, I, you know, again, that was my first, when I was doing this kind of work, it was my first real flying job after, after flight instructing. And, and um, so I didn't know what to expect. And, and I got called out on my first organ, they called it organ harvest. 
we land in Allegheny County, which is in the Pittsburgh area. There are airplanes, and it's like three o'clock in the morning. There's airplanes all over the ramp, and everybody's in medical suits. Everybody is, you can tell, is an air ambulance type operation. I looked at the captain, and I said, "Gosh, was there a major, you know, event or or, or tragic event that caused a, you know, mass deaths or something like that?" And, and everybody's coming to harvest a bunch of stuff. And he said, "No, this is one person. Oh, wow. One person passed away, and these are all of the airplanes coming in to harvest bits and pieces of that person to go, you know, help help somebody else." And I, it just floored me. There there must have been fifteen airplanes on that ramp. That's a good feeling because I know people that donate their bodies to science or health or whatever it may be. I mean, they go a long ways and they save lives all around the world. So did, did that inspire you? Are you an organ donor because of that? I was an organ donor before that, but I'm, <laughs> but I absolutely drives home the importance of being an, an organ donor. And uh, I will tell you one other story. Sorry, I'm getting kind of off track here, but the, it is your podcast. There, there's no tracks it's, here. It's all right. <laughs> the, uh, there's one harvest that sticks out in my mind and I, I can't even remember where we flew to, to pick up, and it was a heart that we were going to. And when you do a heart, you bring a medical staff with you, and they go in, um, harvest the organ, bring it back, and um, and then you take it to wherever the recipient is, and that same doctor team goes in and into the, the recipient. And anyway, this particular one, we show up, and <clears throat> there's a family sitting there in the, in the office, and um, we you know, realized that this is the family of the person who had just died. And, and as we learned more about it, it was a, a young, young guy, recently married, kid on the way. They were at a barbecue and he got stung by a bee and, you know, ended up passing away. And, and uh, about 30 minutes later, the ambulance comes back with the medical crew and the, the father comes up to me and he says, if you don't mind, and they, they, they bring the organs in a cooler, right? They got to keep it cold so that it, it can be put into the recipient and he comes up to me and says, if you don't mind, would it be okay if I loaded the cooler onto the airplane? And absolutely, you know, and I just remember him kneeling down and giving the cooler a big hug and a kiss. And he said, now go save somebody's life, buddy. You know, and we loaded it on and, and off we went. And that's just memories like that of the air ambulance days that'll always stick with me. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Saving lives like that, that, uh, that really tugs on the heartstrings. I mean, hell, it makes me weep up and I wasn't yeah. even there. You don't hear about those stories uh, hardly ever, Mike, because when you think of organ transplant, it's I always assumed it was in the hospital. And, and I've seen Grey's Anatomy, so I know they fly that crap all over the place. But uh, you always think that it's, it's happening in-house, and, and you don't hear about the, the pilots that got to take that from Detroit to Vegas or something. Yeah, and I mean, I'll tell you from a pilot perspective, then there's, you know, you know that the timeline, I think, if I remember it right, that the timeline from when they take it out of the donor and put it into the recipient is like four hours that, that that needs to take place. And inevitably as a pilot, you're going to run into weather issues or mechanical issues with your airplane. And you start thinking about that four hour timeline and all the logistics that need to happen. And there's a, a pressure to kind of complete the job because you want to do it for the recipient, you know, right. and the donor. They got to have time to actually put it in too. So you're, you're even less than a four hour window. They've got to drive it from the hospital and just, just all the logistics at the end of that four hours. So one of the stories that came to mind for me, I remember when you were flying charter for a while, you flew one of the comedians. And if I remember right, didn't he give you a hard time one of his shows? Because if I remember right, didn't you sometimes go to a show with the fella? Uh, like you'd go to a show and then fly him back home afterwards? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's been a, a number of uh, celebrities in the past that I can remember flying. And from time to time, we would get to go to the, go to the shows and, and – uh, 
I, I'm trying to remember a specific time where he was giving me a hard time. Well, there was one that thought about uh, my because I. 40 years old now and I look I still look like I'm 25 but uh, anyway I was 20 like yeah I know yeah (laughs) 25 I looked like I was 15 and they they'd always razz me and say can I look at your driver's license make sure you're old enough to fly this airplane kind of stuff right they would rid me that way um but well, if yeah, I remember ahead. right, the one I was thinking was uh, training wheels on the plane. So you did, I had to get my pilot out there with to tighten his training wheels up or something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so, and I, I guess I've never actually heard the story from you, but my wife tells me this story. So there was a time where the, the, the charter business was kind of uh, in a lull and you worked at the company. I think it's still the, the company that you, that you work for now. And they had to lay you off, but you were certified in a certain plane and uh, a big time celebrity actually got your job back and that kind of kicked you up to where you are now. Yeah, that's it. I mean, so it was 2009 timeframe right after the um, housing crisis and the downturn in the economy really impacted our business significantly. And um, I was lowest man on the totem pole kind of thing. And I was laid off. Uh, as it turns out, it ended up only being for several months. But you're right. We landed with a pretty famous person that um, brought that to us. And, and it was the start of me getting my job back and um so anyway but i would also tell you in that time frame when i was laid off we took a trip we took a cruise with brad and jess <laughs> yeah you remember that oh yeah well a little bit of it so so this guy doesn't have a job and he's going on cruises right he had good credit though oh okay okay good <laughs> <laughs> it was one of those deals we've been planning for it for i don't know how many months six months or something like that and you, you see where the economy's going you know it's not going well you realize you're probably going to be laid off and whatnot. And we got this cruise coming up. It's already paid for. So we said, well, what do you think we ought to do? We said, well, we ought to go on the, we ought to go on the cruise. And um, it was a blast. We had a ton of fun. Brad, you might remember we went out, we were at the hotel before we got onto the cruise yep. and girls have been drink. Well, all of us, we, we started our day early in the pool, right? Enjoying some, some beers all day long and whatnot. And we got hungry. And so they sent Brad and I to the store to go get some food or whatnot and we came back looked like a couple of college kids with all sorts of crazy different uh, well, we had the the ping pong on the string and cowboy hats and all kinds of stuff <laughs> and you brought a full, a full watermelon back right and uh, i remember we had the sweetest little uh, cab driver she's the nicest lady because i and when we got back like you said we were uh, had a watermelon and i tossed it to bridge us here hold this and she <laughs> let go of her towel to grab the watermelon and <laughs> that's what she was wearing and mike's oh my god and he had to cover her up in the hallway <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah we had a good time that was a good cruise but thankfully the week before we went on that boat mike you remember they closed the the new deck on top up by the smokestack thankfully they had that closed by the time we got there yeah that, yeah, that was good news <laughs> yep <laughs> thank god what was, why was it was like a, a ringworm outbreak why did they, <laughs> i don't know i don't know close the nude section but I, I remember that bar tab because as soon as you got out to international waters, they would open the bars up. And they, if I remember right, the bar limit was 18 years old for kids, which we were all 21 plus at the time. But maybe we had a good time, but they just give you a debit card and you scan your card to pay for drinks, food, whatever on the boat, which all the food was included unless you went to a specialty shop. And nothing had prices on it. Oh, just swipe your card. And then they give you a receipt the last day for how much it is. And uh, they were about nine bucks a piece. And I, I think our bar tab for those three days was twelve hundred dollars. Yeah, it, it, yeah. No, I just said the the bar tab at the end of the trip matched the price of the uh, of the cruise. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, it did. <laughs> you remember, they didn't actually swipe your card. There was a number on the back of it, in, like a four-digit number or whatever. And about the third day, we're sitting on the deck outside the pool, and the same lady who's been coming around for three days, we hand her a card, and she's like, I already know your number. She just wrote it down, her beers, and walked out. <laughs> right. No, 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 no. Try 997. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> of all your your travels and uh you know being uh, being a pilot and now you're you know some some big wig i can i can see you're wearing a tuxedo which is kind of and a top hat and yeah, it's really and the monocle really is a bit much yeah yeah a little overdressed but you're you're <laughs> a simple iowa boy from small town living in the the big city how how was that adjustment when you when you first went to school i guess would be when you had to make that adjustment I don't know. I think I was young enough and ambitious enough where it was just a lot of fun. You're meeting friends and, and having a good time. So I don't really remember the difference. I mean, obviously the traffic and you got to plan for how long it's going to take you to get across town and all that. And Toledo, Iowa, it was three minutes you could be across town, you know. So th- those things probably happen. But, you know, the biggest difference for me as I think about it is, you know, my kids upbringing is, is, is just so much different than my childhood, you know, and growing up in small town, Iowa, where, you know, in the summer times you would check your bicycle out at eight o'clock in the morning and you'd be gone until the street lights came on. And, <laughs> right. And, uh, that, that just doesn't happen anymore. And, the, and, and part of it is the, the times that we live in, but it's also the, the bigger town. I mean, you know, Tama Toledo area was 5,000 total people and the, the town we live in here is a hundred and some thousand and the major metro area is a million people it's just my kids are going to have and are having a much different childhood than than what i remember growing up but it, it affords them a lot of opportunities mike that you didn't have in in a town of five thousand people but i, I gotta know because your dad is one of my favorite people and, and patty kins uh mike's mom is an absolutely fantastic human being, but you said you had to check out your bicycle. So I got to, did, did WB have like a rental service? Like you didn't actually have a bicycle as a kid. He just made you rent it out for the day. Inspected it when it came back, make sure no scratches on it. Oh my gosh, you put on this own bitch. <laughs> uh, like that, those are two of my favorite people in the world too, by the way, but not, no, nothing, nothing like that. Just um, But Mike, we've talked about a lot about smoking meat and uh, you've been missing... Uh, a lot of our big smokes we've done up here because you smoke quite a bit down in your place, right? I do, yeah. I, I do smoke quite a bit. And uh, I'll tell you what, one of the best barbecues I've ever had was at Jess's graduation party, however many years ago that was. And I don't know who it was or how it worked out, but you had a big smoker out there and uh, smoked a bunch of stuff. And that brisket was the absolute best brisket I've ever had in my life. That was my ex-brother-in-law. I lost him in a divorce. He was from Texas. Oh. He's a real cowboy. Him? You yep. take him in the divorce? Well, yeah, we tried. We tried. The new guy's pretty awesome, too, but, yeah, I miss him dearly. Yep. Oh, but, uh, what was his name? Started with an R, didn't it? Yep. Rory. Yep. Yeah, Rory was a good dude. But uh, we've been we've been smoking whole like hogs up here. Person, but he could smoke the shit out of a brisket. <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but, yeah, we, we've been smoking whole hogs. You'll have to come up and have a hog smoke with us one of these days. How do you do that? You put it in a smoker, or do you do the old-fashioned bury it? Well, we've built a concrete pit out of cinder blocks, and then we'll set it on the cinder blocks. We'll go out and skin it. We've got a farmer we can go buy it from. We'll skin it and pile it, gut pile it, and then we'll uh, put it in a cooler overnight, and we'll bring it back and cook it the next day. But, yeah, it's been pretty darn good. And I'd love to come up for one of those. You know, Bridget took the kids up there 
last year to the quarry and had a weekend with you guys and just really, really enjoyed it. So oh, yeah, we have a lot of fun doing it. It's it's a whole fiasco. We're actually professionals now because somebody paid us two bucks to do it. And if you get paid for a service, yeah. you're a professional. You you're uh, you're a professional. Right. I'm a hooker. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I have one other question, Mike. One of your boys has a special skill that I didn't know about until he came up last summer, but you just got back on a trip to help promote his special skill. What was that? Yeah, so he solves Rubik's Cubes, and uh, he regularly solves in about 30 to 40 seconds. In fact, oftentimes it's, it's under 30 seconds, and you know, several years ago he, he picked it up and, and wanted to learn more about it. He's completely self self-taught i have absolutely no idea how to how to solve one of these things but he got online and learned the algorithms and the, the hand movements and all that stuff and he uh he wrote it all out on paper and there's hundreds of different algorithms to get one solved he wrote it all out on paper and uh, he'd sit up there i'd scramble it for him which i'd hand it to him and he'd sit there and look at those algorithms and solve it and at one point i said all right let's take the paper away and set him down on the couch handed it to him and he kind of played around with it for about two minutes, you know, thinking through those algorithms that he had written out and whatnot, and he got it solved. And that kind of inspired him to try to do it more and quicker and, and, and whatnot. So last weekend, we took him up to Chicago for his birthday. Uh, there was a cubing competition that, that he participated in, and it was it was really neat to see. It. They, they, they put on a really good event, and Wyatt really, really enjoyed it. And like I said, he regularly solves in the 30 to 40 second time. The winner of that competition, when it was done, over 15 solves, his average solve time was six seconds. Oh, oh my gosh. What a nerd. Yeah. Was he like 40? Yeah, he's 16 years old. He's, oh, got okay. a, he's like number 10 in the world or something like that. I would have beat so. him up taking his trophy, 16-year-old <laughs> shit. <laughs> I've made babies in less time. <laughs> So, <laughs> so I mean that's pretty impressive because if I remember, he's colorblind, right? <laughs> <laughs> he thinks they're solved. He's really just mixing them up more. <laughs> you guys have been lying to him for years. <laughs> Good job, buddy. Let me scramble this again. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm making fun of handicapped kids. That's the worst, Frank. Okay, colorblind is an inconvenience. It's not a handicap. Really, yeah, I would it? agree. I would agree. Mike, hot take? Yeah. In your line, of, I guess in his line of work, it absolutely is. Because if you were colorblind, you couldn't fly, right? Yeah, that's a good point. So, you, yeah. In fact, one of the tests that you do when you get a medical, which is required a medical evaluation every six months or a year, depending on what you're flying, they actually do a colorblind test. And that's something that's really important that you're not colorblind. They do make an exception. If you are, you can do, you know, and there's different degrees of colorblindness. So if you're kind of on the spectrum of not so colorblind, it's called a SOTA, Statement of Demonstrated Ability, where you can go out and prove to the FAA that you can actually do your job flying an airplane with the level of colorblindness that you have. And there's a whole process that you have to go through. But yeah, bottom line is colorblindness is, uh, can be difficult for pilots to navigate. So in the long term, uh, so you're... CFO or CEO of your company. Is that right? Uh, president and CEO. Yeah. Okay. So where would you like to be in another 10 years or in your golden years? I know you're a long ways from it, but you're only, you're 40 years old, right? Same age as us. Okay. Where would you like to be in your golden years? Do you want to retire in Tulsa? Do you want to go back to Iowa? You want to live in the mountains, the lakes? What would you like to see happen? He wants to cat yeah. on a boat. It, it's hot here in the summer times. I, I probably don't want a summer here. 
I'd love to have a home up in Minnesota or, or even northern Iowa or somewhere where it's cooler in the in the summertime and, and then a home somewhere in the south for the for the winter. I think that's probably what, what we'd like to see in the next ten to fifteen years in the golden years as you say. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's kind of our bucket list. Jess would like to have something on the water somewhere when we get old. How about you, Frank? My, well, first of all, I think my golden years are a little bit further off than Mike's. 10 to 15 years will be 50, 55. Oh, yeah. I'm going to die behind one of these microphones. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I, always, I always tease Shiloh because she hates uh, traffic. And like, water. She's and, scared of water. And, well, not not really water. Uh, she's nervous around water with the girls. Right. We go places they are not familiar with the terrain. She's worried they're going to slip and fall in, which is, I think, a, a noble concern. But I've always teased Shy that I want to get an RV and then just drive around the, the country, go see the, the Redwoods. And uh, I've been to the Grand Canyon, but seeing that again, you yeah. know, driving up into Canada and, and down to New Mexico, I think... Uh, just seeing the country would be fantastic, but she is so against that. She's probably gonna. She's gonna be worried about gas prices and how much it costs. As frugal as she is, oh yeah, she's she's. Uh, well, we're gonna have to stop in uh, Albuquerque and get a job for six months so we can yeah. afford gas. So yeah, quit driving down hills. Coast down hills. <laughs> Lay off the throttle, you son of a bitch. <laughs> Uh, who, who am I kidding? Because she's gonna drive it. I'm not gonna drive. Right. She's not gonna let me drive that uh, that RV. <laughs> I can haul kids on buses, but I can't haul her in an RV. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, even backing things up, she's like, you better let me handle this, and she'll jump in and take over. And I've seen it happen. To be fair, I can't back up lawnmower with the trailer on. Well, you'll never learn with her doing it for you. Well, it's kind of nice to have, have her do that. Mike, who's the best backer-upper at your house? Uh, me, by far. But I don't, I don't do trailers. I mean, we don't have a need to regularly do trailers. I don't have a boat or a camper or anything like that but if we're backing the car up it's me over bridget can't be uh, much different that, plane didn't your wife back her car into your car one time well yes she did however she drove she backed her car into her car then she backed her car into my truck but the one with her car she drove home parked her car got in the other car and then backed into the one she just parked <laughs> and then Out of spite well, yeah, I don't think she was bad. Who parked that there? Oh, bitch. But yeah, I was parked off to the side of our driveway, and she came out of her garage looking on her driver's side, and I was on the passenger side. And yeah, I got a little fender bender out of that deal. And insurance wouldn't cover it because we own both vehicles. Mike, you'll enjoy this story. So last year when I was on Ragbri, which Mike was supposed to come on with me this year, but he wussed out because he's got some fancy job. I was at Ragbri, and Frankie, uh, my uh, eight-year-old, he's probably seven at the time, uh, Brad let her drive the Ranger around his his campus there. I'm going to call it campus. Unsuccessfully. And what she did was she ran it into a tree. So Brad had to go back her out of the tree. And he said, you got to steer like this. And here's the brake. And she immediately turned and then rammed into the side of my pickup. She never turned the wheel either time. <laughs> just just complete right into the side of the pickup. And I wasn't there. So she called me on rag, Brian told me, I was like, eh, I got bigger things to worry about. But uh, this, uh, this winter I smoked deer Yep. And when I smoked the deer, I tried to convince the insurance company that it also dented the side of my box. And they didn't believe me, so it was two separate claims. So I had to pay two deductibles. Who cares? But when I explained to them what happened, they wanted Brad's number to call and make sure that his side-by-side -side was okay because they were going to pay for that if it was uh, damaged at all. Oh, yeah, it smashed the hell out of it. Yeah, that's what I told them. And they're like, screw that guy. 
it, it did crack me up though. Back to the beginning of that story, she never turned the wheel an inch either time. She hit the tree and just had a death grip on it, and she was making a smooth left turn. And I pushed her out back to hey, all right, hon, you got to steer the wheel like this. And I backed her out. And she hit the gas again, just held on the wheel, blammo. And there was pl- there was a hundred and fifty yards on the right side of the truck, but she just kept turning left. Yeah, that's well. I'm glad she hit the truck and didn't go into the ditch and get hurt. So. Or she would have hit a cornfield and been fine. I don't know. You seen the price of corn lately? Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I don't think I would have been fine with that claim. Do your boys do any driving, any power wheels, anything like that? How's their motor skills? Are they going to be future pilots, you think? Well, we bought a, a little power wheels for my oldest when he was, I don't know, four years old or something like that. He no, drove the heck. Those are the worst because they don't have to hit the brake to stop. I think that's what Frankie's problem was. She just let off the gas and rolled right into the, the side of the truck. Buy Y in a golf cart and let him go all over Tulsa. I bought an old 1989 Taylor Dunn cart. I don't know if you guys are familiar with those, but uh, it was in terrible shape, and I kind of refurbished it in the garage over several months. And anyway, we, we drive that around the neighborhood and whatnot. I recently let Wyatt start driving it, so he's, he's enjoying getting to learn how to drive on that thing. Oh, yeah. I think golf carts are probably the best thing to teach uh, kids what, what to drive. We can't say anything in front of Brad because – I think uh, his oldest, Caden's been driving a, a forty twenty since he was three. <laughs> not not quite three, but he's been operating farm equipment on his own since he was probably eight. Yeah, I mean to some to some degree. I mean regularly twelve to thirteen, but started when he was eight. That's the deal. Is the farm kids they start way earlier than any of us uh, kids who grew up in the city. Right. Like I I couldn't drive a stick shift until I was uh, forty two, and I'm forty. <laughs> Well, you had the Jetta in high school. I did have the Jetta. I could drive a stick shift. Quick story, side note on that. I, I don't want to derail Michael's uh, conversation here. But in high school, I took Shiloh on a date uh, in the Jetta. And she's like, hey, uh, can I can I drive? I was like, it's a stick shift. Can you drive a stick shift? Not knowing her upbringing at all. Right. So I took her to the mall parking lot in, in, uh, in the city next to us. And she killed it several times. And I'm like, oh, I'm going to have to get a new clutch in this thing. This is... Turns out she could drive a stick shift since she was like eight. Yep. She was just flirting with me and, and making me feel like a man. She's like, why don't you put your hand on my leg and show me how to run that clutch? Yeah. All right. <laughs> yeah, push it in. Let it out slow, girl. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, so did uh, when you and Bridget started dating, was it uh, was it just straight hot and heavy like it is now, or did, did it have a buildup to it? How the hell am I supposed to answer that one, Frank? <laughs> That's what we call a loaded question. Well, is. so did you think she was pretty when you first saw her? Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> good answer. Good answer. All right. We found our trailer. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, I remember one weekend because uh, Jess and Bridget lived together, and we were at home in Iowa at my house, and Jess was still paying rent down there. And we came home for the weekend, and uh, Bridget had somebody who would stay in Jess's bed once in a while, a family member. And we got down there, and there was a hole burnt in Jess's pillow. Whoever was staying in there had fallen asleep smoking and <laughs> burn a hole in Jess's pillow. We're like, what the hell is this? And we asked Bridget, oh, well, so-and-so was in there. must have fallen asleep. <laughs> yeah, evidently. <laughs> you're, you're right. I haven't heard about that in years, but I remember that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that was funny. What the hell happened here? <laughs> Uh, so Brad, should we should we wrap her up here and, and let Mike get to uh, today's uh, Mike's oldest uh, birthday? So oh, well, thank you for taking time that. away, Mike. Yeah. But do you have anything else you've got to have the world know about Michael F. Scow before we cut you loose? I don't think that I do. I really appreciate you guys inviting me on. I've I've enjoyed this, and uh, 
I've listened to all the podcasts you've had leading up to this and really enjoyed listening to them. So just happy to be a part of it and appreciate it, guys. Well, thank you, Mike. Yeah, we appreciate uh, pre- appreciate your time. You're, the, you're by far the uh, fanciest person we've talked to. Yes. And I only say that because I know you hate it. <laughs> <laughs> well, sounds yeah. good, Mike. It was good talking to you, sir. And good talking to you guys, too. Hope to see you soon. All right. We appreciate it. That's Mike, our good buddy and pilot and meat smoker. And I don't think there's anything. You ever played golf with this son of a bitch? Oh, he's a hell of a golfer. Oh, I don't think he's. He's one of those people, I think, that when he tries something, he just figures it out yep. immediately and is pretty good at it. I did watch him kick a putt in once, though. He did? Well, he might have. He's like 40 yards out. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> we appreciate it. This is one more, and we all go. You can listen to us at new episodes every Sunday. You can find us on uh, Apple, on uh, Spotify, and uh, almost everywhere where podcasts are listened to. Sounds good. <laughs>